It's the Wonky Show. Uh, we'll talk admissions. Is there really a crunch on places in UKHE? Uh, we'll ask if the sector has the energy for the inflation crisis. And there's a new pamphlet out on free speech, but will its recommendations work? It's all coming up. Because even if you say, well, OK, as, a, as an institution, if you're making an offer to a student where you know that accommodation is going to be necessary for them to take it up, then you do have some sort of duty to make sure there is a, you know, a reasonable amount of accommodation available, either through you or through somewhere else. Because of all the variables that Sunday's just talked about, the minute you introduce something like Airbnb into the mix... Welcome back to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and here to munch at this week's hot bacon rolls of HE policy, as usual, three brilliant guests. Uh, in Birmingham, Smita Jamdar is partner and head of education at Shakespeare Martino. Smita, your highlight of the week, please. The highlight of my week was a celebratory lunch yesterday for um, a new joiner to our team, a newly qualified solicitor. So um, just great to see everybody have a nice lunch, celebrate promotion. Ah, that's excellent news. And in Somerset House in London, Gavin Conlon is partner at London Economics. Gavin, your highlight of the week, please. I didn't have any, actually. Uh, It's been such a grim week in economic terms that I'm just bracing myself for what's uh, yet to come. (laughs) Brace, brace from Gavin. And in Nottingham, Sunday Blake is associate editor at Wonky. Sunday, your highlight of the week, please. I brought new headphones for the podcast and they're really good. So I hope everyone's appreciating the crisp sound that's coming out of uh, <laughs> an album. The crisp, all, crisp sound. Yeah. All the way from Nottingham. Yeah, all the yeah, way from exactly. Nottingham. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, so yes, we start this week with admissions. There's been a glut of coverage over recent weeks suggesting a crunch on places. But as ever, uh, it may be more complicated than that, Smita. It is indeed, Jim. Um, uh, like every aspect of university life, admissions have become uh, a source of fascination uh, for the, the, the media. Um, and today we see the final release of the UCAS clearing data. Uh, we've already had some commentary on what it might purport to show us. So over the weekend, the Financial Times uh, reported on the number of 18-year-olds from England, Wales and Northern Ireland admitted to high-ranking institutions, saying that it had fallen and pinning the blame on the failing unit of resource. Um, other culprits include international students who are apparently displacing uh, UK students. Um, and all of this is, of course, covered um, by a great blog this uh, on Wonky Today by Claire Marchant, who's trying to bring some uh, light rather than heat to this particular issue um, and making the point that, you know, overall, it's a very positive and encouraging story. And despite all efforts, 18-year-olds seem as keen to go to university, if not more keen than they ever were. Um, and I think there's quite a lot there which which should reassure the sector uh, about the sustainability of, of demand. Um, I was struck by just a couple of points, though. I, I, I think the question around mature students, so the focus is obviously always on 18-year-olds, but we know from the point of view of lifelong learning and what's necessary for the economy, mature students are really, really important. They That's not such a rosy picture for them and we should perhaps think about that a little. And I think there is some work that the sector needs to do to reassure people that the experience for students will be able to be maintained against the backdrop of both the falling unit of resource and ever-increasing numbers. So I think there's a bit of work there for the sector. Those are the bits that hmm. sort of stood out to me. Well, that's interesting. But, but I mean, before we get there, I mean, wh- where have these stories come from, Smith, then? Is, is this about the distribution of demand? That, you know, is it that 
a whole bunch of people weren't getting into the Russell Group and have had to kind of go elsewhere. Is that is that where all the stories have come from in the past few weeks? I mean, that oversimplifies it potentially, but is that what it is? I, I you, you're right about the risk of oversimplification, but I have a you, you can't avoid the conclusion that there's quite a strong element of that. Um, I mean, we know that when certain parts of the media are talking about universities, they're really talking about at most the Russell Group, and for many of them, just two universities. That's it. So how much visibility they've got of the pattern across universities, um, I think, is is questionable. Um, and also, you know, lots of people going to university, isn't that great, isn't really a headline, is it? So, so they've had to find some aspect of it. There is something in, I think, Claire's blog, which, which you know, I, I suspect is, is is close to what they wanted, which is uh, there, were, there were quite a lot of students this year who didn't get to go where they wanted to go. They didn't get the place where they wanted. And I think that's the issue. There is that kind of unequal demand for places yeah. across the sector. Gavin, this is um, this is interesting. I think partly because clearly Claire Marchant from UCAS isn't going to be reflecting on what we might otherwise describe as winners and losers. But presumably, inevitably, when we finally get to see provider level uh, data, there will be winners and losers here. I mean, there certainly will be winners and losers. But I think there's a more fundamental uh, issue going on. I mean, it's. You know, this, we're going to talk about this later as well, but I mean, the unit for resource, I mean, for the regulated fee, essentially undergraduate full-time fees. I mean, if you go back to 2006, seven, for those of you who are alive, um, you know, the top up fee and the teaching grants, essentially in real terms, I mean, by 26, 2026, 27, the fee and the, the small remaining teaching grant available is going to be worth less in real terms than in 2006, 2007. So there's been a, basically a real erosion of resource over 20 years. And the issue is basically, you know, you look at uh, Office for Students track data and essentially, I mean, what are universities, are they able to cover their costs in terms of undergraduate domestic students? And the recovery rate is about 97%, 98%. So basically, they're just breaking even. And I think there's this, there is this real issue about uh, universities are trying to look and, and bolster third income streams and looking at international students because essentially the recovery rate is like so healthy on uh, international students that it's, it's covering or cross-subsidizing both domestic teaching and uh, research activity. The issue is though, there's a lot of talk about <clears throat> international students displacing domestic students. That's not true at all. I mean, essentially universities are taking international students to cover the costs, the fixed costs that they're incurring associated with domestic students. So I think there's a lot of smoke and mirrors going on. But, um, you know, universities, you can understand why some universities are not, uh, you know, being so aggressive in terms of recruiting domestic students. Also, because there's an overhang from previous years and has been talked about on Wonky, there's an awful lot of issues about accommodation in certain, you know, cities. There is no accommodation. So there's a lot of issues going on. But, but, but Gavin, isn't that partly the point? So, of course, it is the case that international student fees are actually enabling uh, providers to kind of recruit um, home domiciled students. But actually, you know, every single time an international student, you know, you know, books into a you know a high end hall of residence, that's a bed space that isn't available for other students. And, and as you say, lots of cities are running out of places to live. Yeah, but that's a wider. That's that's just talking about the demand side of the market. You got to look at the supply side of the market. I mean, there are other issues in in the housing market. And I think, irrespective of whether you're a student or other. Otherwise, I mean, a housing market is like sort of, you know, not working in many, many UK cities. I mean, the question is, why isn't there an additional supply of university accommodation? 
you know, if you look at the Republic of Ireland, I mean, the, the higher education minister has recently uh, done a deal with the major universities just to build massive accommodation blocks because there is the same sort of problem happening in particularly in Dublin. So, you know, you can't just sort of blame, you know, excess demand. There's excess demand because there's insufficient supply. Sort out the supply side as well. Um, I think one of the issues I've been hearing about in London is like student flats being taken off the HMO student accommodation market and being turned into Airbnbs. And um, <laughs> in a way, like it kind of makes sense. So I think someone was telling me that their £2,000 a month student flat was now a £7,000 a month Airbnb which is, you know, uh, makes sense why someone would do that. But also, I know that one of the things that's happening in more remote cities or rural cities is that student accommodation blocks are just consistently being blocked um, or ha- like from planning permission, right? So like you get these sort of big resident campaigns being like, we don't want these student accommodation blocks. We don't want them here. We don't want them there, whatever. And then they get blocked and then they can't get built, um, which is like, I understand people don't necessarily want a big student accommodation block because you get issues with like rubbish collection you get issues of noise you get issues of light pollution like i get that there are problems around that but equally i see the same types of residents making the argument that housing in the city that could be available to local residents is being turned into student housing then local residents can't rent houses out and they get pushed out to the wider like parts of the city so like at some point there has to be some kind of consensus or uh, like there has to be some kind of compromise on where we're going to put these students because they can't we can't like put them underground like (laughs) they have to be somewhere um i mean this is interesting right so i mean smita you might have seen last night uh there's a story today that has been picked up by one of the papers and then kind of remixed by several others about glasgow university advising students not to enroll because there's kind of no accommodation you know should it have got that far you know should people be kind of working out how many bed spaces there are in a city and that that's their limit or you know should universities be kind of pushing it in order to encourage the market to respond i mean how do we how do we manage this you know if government is going to do central planning and step in yeah. what what do you do yeah no i th- i think it is just um like most things the minute you start to pull at it it starts to unravel and it just becomes this huge unmanageable issue because even if you say well okay as a as an institution if you're making an offer to a student where you know that accommodation is going to be necessary for them to take it up then you do have some sort of duty to make sure there is a you know a reasonable amount of accommodation available either through you or through somewhere else because of all the variables that Sunday's just talked about the minute you introduce something like Airbnb into the mix how could you ever know what the occupancy level is these these buildings are just not available to you um, and I think the really worrying thing is if if we are entering a point where government is essentially saying no more sort of central planning of any of this stuff, no more centralised directions around you know investing in these kind of this kind of infrastructure. It's all going to be down to low invest you know inter- low sorry investment zones where the free market takes reign. How are you ever going to fix it? I just don't, I, I think I'm sort of feeling like we're getting further away from a solution rather than closer to it. Just as the problem gets much much worse yes yeah, so gavin carry ca- carry carry the lines on the graph on for us so you know even if um i mean even if you just st- 
stopped expanding your number of kind of first years or, you know, your, your PGTs or whatever now, presumably next year, there's still more students knocking around because of the kind of compound impact of uh, yeah, taking of on more students. You know, this, we, of course, this, this, this doesn't go away, this problem, does it? No, no, it doesn't. And I think, I mean, Glasgow, maybe University of Glasgow might have had a bit of bad press, but I mean, I think it's also the case that that university in particular made, was, made very generous offers in the middle of COVID and basically just opened the doors and, you know, had a no judgment policy. So I think, you know, they're sort of paying the price now, but I mean, it was done for all the right reasons, I think. So I think they've got to get a, you know, a bit of a free pass on that one. I think the issue is that there's this confusion about, you know, with the current government that, uh, and it's just general confusion, but um, the confusion with the current government is that, you know, they believe that they can't intervene or that there shouldn't be central planning. I mean, if there's market failure, then there's an obligation for the government to get involved. And that's why we have primary schools and secondary schools, you know, because that wouldn't be provided to the entire population if it wasn't for the government. In the same way, you know, people can turn around and sort of say, well, we don't want <clears throat> that uh, student residential block with 500 students sort of down the road from us. And it's nimbyism. But it's also the case that those 500 students <clears throat> and their expenditures keep the cities alive. Sunday, isn't there a danger? I mean, I keep hearing tales of universities with significant numbers of international PGT students that are living nowhere near the campus. You know, how easy do we need to know where people are living? I mean, there's obviously lots of pressure to say we don't need to know, you know, lots of teaching and learning and so on is accessible at a distance these days. But we do need to know if people are actually kind of anywhere near campus, don't we? Yeah, I mean, I would take a, a, a particularly a master's student or international t- student, I would, you know, wager a pretty large bet that if, if they've made the effort to move to the city that they're studying, they do actually want to be on campus, right? Like that's that seems pretty obvious. So I think that's important. I think the other thing that we, we also need to think about is um, disability and disabled access as well. Um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of students find it difficult to have their accessibility needs properly assessed and by the institution before they arrive. So, you know, it, you sort of, you do have all this pre-enrollment stuff where you know you can you know declare that you've got a disability but it's not until you're actually there and talking to someone that you know you can say well this is the help I need or this is the help that's available that's fantastic that's great come onto campus we'll you know we'll make adjustments whatever all of that falls by the wayside if you're living 16 miles away and you've got a chronic health condition which means that traveling that distance means that the next day you're completely wiped out do you know what i mean like it like it has these like different knock-on effects where all of these solutions you know putting students at manchester and huddersfield are based on the child-free able-bodied 18 year old student and no one else that likes coaches um (laughs) (laughs) The thing is, though, Smita, right? I mean, you know, we've been here before. I swear we've had this conversation on the podcast before. You know, is it as higher education demand continues to increase, is that compatible with a model that says we send a huge proportion of people away from home on a boarding school model? I'm, are the, I'm not sure the two are compatible, are they? They're, they're, they're definitely not compatible, but we don't seem to really be able to move beyond um, that model as being the primary model for um And then because we don't want to fund it, we're propping it up with other people that are moving away from home from other parts of the world. (laughs) Quite. And then complaining about that at the same time, saying there's too many of them. (laughs) 
so so yeah i i i you know you, there is there has to come a point where you say this is not sustainable now whenever i've heard discussions about this it's been very much an either or you know you either have commuting students who never you know don't go away from home they live at home or near home uh, or alternatively you have 3 years residential abroad i've i've never really heard anyone explore the idea of a possible hybrid model where you try and give people the experience of both uh, including some blended and distance learning you know well i will all- refer you to a blog i wrote on the site last year mate <laughs> well Jim, uh, you're a pro- prolific author, and we're enormously <laughs> grateful to you. I will, I will look that up because I think that's got to be the space that we have this conversation, which is, you know, people will want to taste both. Some will, um, and but we can't necessarily do it for everybody all the time. So, how do we make it equitable? Well, there we go. Now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, my name's Graham Towell. I'm professor of forensic psychology at Durham University, and this week I've got a blog on Wonky which is about our problem with sexual violence at universities and how we might best tackle it. But essentially, I make the case for greater transparency uh, about our problem with sexual violence uh, and also the case for more of a focus on perpetrators too, not simply victim-survivors. Important, though, of course, the perspectives from victim-survivors are. Um, I make some practical suggestions. So, for example, as having a national prevalence survey so we can assess the extent of our problem and also measure progress in terms of anything we do to address our problem with sexual violence. Uh, open days are a great way of starting uh, to look at this in a more transparent way. So we need to talk maybe about our problem with sexual violence with prospective students so they know that um, that this is something that we are truly taking seriously in the sector. I hope you find the read of interest. Now, next up, has the sector got the energy for the year ahead? Gavin, uh, what's been going on with energy both for... Uh, you know, non-domestic and domestic users. Okay, so University UK this week uh, repeated its calls for additional support from the government for students affected by the soaring, soaring costs of living. Uh, and I noted that much of the package being outlined this week does not apply to students who, according to UK, UK President Steve West, risk becoming the forgotten group of the crisis. Okay, so all about energy costs and about costs of living. Um, the announcements that have been made also suggest that the price cap for non-domestic use of energy uh, will provide respite from the soaring energy costs for some providers at least. Uh, and as David Kernan sort of has uh, illustrated on one of his blogs this morning, he's gone through, you know, basically the nature of the contracts that are in place and how it might affect some institutions. So this is the big issue actually sort of at the moment. Um, and it's quite uh, a challenging one. Okay. I mean, so when I was thinking about this, we've done a little bit of piece of work recently about uh, university finances. I mean, listen, this is all that we do. And one of the really interesting things about this is that um, a typical institution, typical higher education institution has an income of maybe £200 million and the expenditure, their expenditure is about £185 million. So they make a little bit of a surplus, about £15 million on, on average. And one of the really important things to remember about the energy crisis is, you know, the spike in uh, commodity prices. The issue is that the, the use of energy by universities is massive. Okay, and you walk around a campus in the evening, you see all the lights on, you can just imagine what the bills are. But, you know, we did analysis and a typical institution is going to see their costs increase by, you know, two, three, four million pounds a year. Now, given the fact that the typical surplus the university makes is about 15 million pounds, this is money straight out of the bottom line. And essentially, because of what we were talking about earlier in terms of cost recovery, this basically is going to kick through and result in less services for students and staff. Okay, so we've got a real problem. But one thing that's been overlooked is about um, 
students. Okay, so students are equally affected by this and they're being forgotten. And there's a lot of talk at the moment, uh, you know, including the Russell Group have come out, University UK have come out, have talked about what are we going to do about student uh, and their cost of living? And what are we going to do about maintenance support? Because maintenance support has been basically, you know, to all intents and purposes, frozen and less, less or fewer students have been eligible for this over time. So what are we going to do about um, students? So I'm going to kick that across to Sunday. But actually, no, no, before we do, before we go there, Gavin, I mean, the thing about this that I keep thinking about is it is not as if over the past 12 months, the government hasn't taken lots of steps to, to spend less, at least in the, the way that, you know, the, the accounts work, to spend less on student maintenance because of the way in which it's going to recover more of that loan later. Now, how is it how is it even possible that the Michelle Donlan has managed to deliver these huge kind of notional savings for the treasury but none of that is, has gone back to students is it that they're, they're those savings are only notional and accounting or are those savings real and it's just they're being pocketed by the center um I mean, most of those, I mean, they're, they're savings from an accountancy perspective. So what you're talking about is, is the RAB charge and the proportion of the loan that's written off. And that has basically fallen from about, I mean, my God, pick a number. I mean, it was like 50, 60%, uh, until sort of relatively recently. But there's been a couple of changes to the accounting rules where the discount rate, the rate at which we value the future repayments and the current, uh, loan outlays, that's changed fundamentally. There's also the introduction of a hugely regressive, um, stealth tax uh, and a reduction or alongside a reduction in the repayment threshold. So the RAB charge has fallen to, I mean, we, we talk about now, I think we were saying it's like in the in the order of 12, 13%. So huge savings have been made notionally. But as you say, none of that has been handed back to students. Okay. Um, so it's a transfer. It's a direct transfer between graduates and uh, the treasury. Students are sort of left sitting in the middle. You know, they've had their maintenance grants, grants removed. They're seeing their maintenance loans operated by, you know, 2% or 2.5%, something, you know, essentially trivial. Um, you know, it's, it's to be honest, like, it's not a nice time being a student. It's really, really quite horrible. Students are getting nothing out of it, despite all the changes the government are, are proposing. Sunday, what's your reading of kind of how this has happened? Is it, is it um, cock-up? Is it conspiracy? Is, it, is, this, is this a kind of, you know, is someone deep in the Treasury trying to transfer the cost of higher education onto parents because there's an assumption that people don't pay enough? Or is it that students have just been overlooked? Or is it, you know, the kind of politics of focusing on the triple lock for pensioners? You know, what is, how have we got here? Well, I mean, I don't think it's a conspiracy as much. Okay, we've got to be really careful of this because one of the things that really annoys me when we're talking about higher education and we're talking about higher education funding and vice chancellors' salaries and all this kind of stuff is there's a difference between conspiracy and ideology, right? Like, just because our government and is, is imposing free market ideology onto the sector does not mean that that's some dark conspiracy. That just means that they're following free market ideology. Like, that's... Yeah, so <laughs> careful with that one. Um, I think, I, I do think that it's a little bit of that sprinkled in with the fact that students are consistently overlooked as a vulnerable group, right? So there's that example. Uh, I think you used this, Jim, maybe oh, two, three months ago of, I'm probably a bit longer than that, actually. So it's kind of pandemic, post-pandemic time is all a blur. But when uh, Rishi Sunak said that he sort of came out and he, that, um, he was like, Oh, I've helped the bottom three. I've bought, I've helped the bottom, um, like 10% of household, households, right? In, in something or other. But oh, yes, I know did, what you mean. Yeah, yeah you know what I mean. It's this outrage that the Department for Work and Pensions analysis of households income. <laughs> 
takes the entire country, divides it into 10, ignores yeah. people in halls, and then for students in HMOs counts their tuition fee loan right. bloody yeah. income. Right, yeah, exactly. So he's saying, he he's out here saying, oh, I've helped the bottom like percentage of households, whatever, but he's still, he's not counting students because student household income is counted as income despite the fact it goes straight to the institution. You know, it's completely outrageous because students don't see any of that money. Now, that is just one example in about, I would say, 2030, where, like, students are just consistently overlooked compared to the rest of the population. And so so when we're talking about it being a conspiracy or whatever, we ha- I just think we have to be really careful because that makes it sound as if, like, someone's got into a room and gone, oh, I've got a really great idea. What we can do is we can just shift the, shift all the suffering or whatever, all the financial burden onto the parents of students, and then it'll be fine. That's, I don't actually think that's what's happening here. I think what's happening here is it's, it's consistently, consistent policy oversights that have contributed to a larger problem that is correctly, like, you know, for us to point out, falling on, onto students and their parents. But I don't think that that was intentional. But, but that's on. not to say that the harm isn't real. But hold on, Smita, right? I mean, there must be people inside DFE that understand what's happening here. Is it that they're losing the argument with their kind of friends and colleagues across government or is it that they're not having the argument or is it that i mean what's going on well, like <laughs> i mean i suspect it's it's partly that students are just not as a group seen as electorally significant um so they're not th- there's a number of things going on first of all they're often not even seen as adults so they're seen as you know schools are, universities are big schools these days so they're just more kids who are the responsibility of their parents so that's a bit of that going on the second thing is they don't come out and lobby efficiently as a group the nus currently for obvious reasons is not the not the voice that it, it has in the past been or could indeed be in these important areas and the final thing is they don't come out and vote so they're not important from an electoral point of view. So I don't think there is a conspiracy. They just don't register on the radar in any meaningful way for, for government. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's my, you know, cards on the table. My son's off to university next week for the first time. Um, I'm really excited for him. But at the same time, I look at what students have gone through from the pandemic, you know, being affected by the pandemic. I think more than any other part of the sector, they had to give up so much. And they did it generally with a kind of good heart, a glad heart. Um, and they've had no thanks and they've had nothing without, well, for me, it's not so, it was, it was meant to be more a statement of what I felt was real civic duty on their part. You know, they've got on with it, but they can't just keep getting on with it. You know, so we need to think of them and we need to find ways to help them. And what's been announced is frankly risible. But I mean, you know, to be fair, I mean, I, I, you know, last time we were talking about this on the podcast, I remember I was kind of saying, look, you know, um, why, why on earth isn't Universities UK framing this as a kind of issue for parents? Notwithstanding, as I see it, as, as I said there, notwithstanding the fact that there are lots of students who can't rely on their parents, but you know, to make it an electorally important issue the parent and to be fair to you uk this week it has framed its kind of cost of living you know saber rattle in the run-up to this emergency not budget budget in, from the perspective of parents which is you know potentially very good news if they can kind of get that argument working because because in the end gavin you know you know the thing is even if students aren't important parents grandparents aunties uncles they really are important aren't they yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, you sort of see, I mean, I, I don't know how many education secretaries you have to go back. I mean, if you remember uh, Gavin Williamson, I mean, it was only, it was, I don't know, what's that, three, four, five, pick a number. Uh, I, 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 I'm going to insert the, 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 you know, the harp sound now, so that we can all kind of think back to the dim yeah. and distant past but, of I mean, last week. If you go back all that time, like when, you know, the, the kids were getting 
uh, their A level results, and you know, under you know the teacher's S grades or the algorithm, and it was all a mess. I mean, the minute parents got involved and got annoyed, you know, policy changed within fifteen minutes. I mean, you know, I think the other issue about this is, well, I think you're absolutely right about the you know, the voting behaviour and the organisation of of students. I think there is a, a second issue about. Um, you know the, the the change that we made to the student loan repayment system in terms of driving down the cost of the exchequer. I think they've actually delivered or will deliver greater co- uh, savings than was originally anticipated. Okay, that's one thing. However, really importantly, this week's non-budget budget. Um, you know, by all accounts, this is going to be a direct transfer from the young to the old, and it's going to be a direct transfer from the poor to the wealthy. Okay, and this is a really important issue that the young people have been. You know, they're you know they're getting a bad deal as you know in higher education. You know, they're getting a bad deal in school, okay, because the unit of resource in school has just been eviscerated. Um, and this is going to carry on for the next 20 years. I mean, these tax rises that will have to be imposed further down the road are going to affect these young people until retirement. I mean, it's already the case that the, uh, the period of repayment has been extended to 40 years. So they've got a marginal tax rate of 9% over everyone else for the next 40 years. It's basically, you know, it's sort of almost completely incomprehensible that younger people aren't aren't out on the streets rioting about this stuff. Too tired. (laughs) We've got all our part-time jobs that we're having to go to as well. Um, I do do think, though, that there is one, one like... uh... There's one dynamic here that I keep seeing, and you, norm, normally in like comment sections, I'll be honest, it's not norm, it's not like you know the sort of headline piece or anything, but like there's this really, and I've I actually spoke about this last time I was on the podcast, and I'm saying it again because it annoys me still. This idea that students are meant to find financially suffer like we're meant to eat sorry say we i'm a student yes <laughs> they're meant to <laughs> eat like t- uh, beans out of tin like do you know what i mean it's this idea that actually yeah exactly and it's so annoying because it's like like this idea that poor quality of life for three four five years is uh is somehow character building not at all like this is, not uh, at all this is like a monty python scene you know th- <laughs> this literally is like you know um, the famous one for Yorkshireman, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Although to be fair, every time someone says "never did me any harm," I look at them and think, "Yes, it did." <laughs> I think the I think the biggest lesson for me is don't read below the line comments Sunday. That that way oh, lies I, insanity. I don't on my own. I don't on my own pieces. <laughs> I mean, the other the, the other thing I just sort of say it's actually reflecting reflection of young people's um, immune systems. I mean, the fact that like you know, if y- young people, as students, sort of have to live in deprived circumstances, and that shouldn't be the case, and they're sort of surviving on beans and toast, that is literally a reflection of how good their immune systems are. If they try to do that thirty years later, they'd be in their coffins. Well, there we go. Now, every week on the show, we delve deep into the sector's past to discover stories of how things were and how things came to be with academic registrar and sector historian Mike Ratcliffe. Here's the hidden history of HE. So one of the questions that arises from educating women is should they have a special curriculum for women? Should they be doing the same as men? What's going to be happening? Though you have to put this in context. It's very important not to take historical things out of context and, and laugh at people in the past. Never want to do that. Um, but if, in the context of what women's careers were like, well, what would a, what would a useful degree for women uh, look like? So the King's College Department of Women um, has decided that it, it's going to explore what that might look like. And it gets some benefactions 
from outside to set up a course to think about a useful course for, for women to do. And they settled on household and social science as the model that they should they should take forward. So they start to develop a course in this. Now, this quite quickly becomes uh, quite an important part of the college, and they transfer back to King's, um, the, the English and history and other kinds of subjects, and leaving the college to really concentrate on household and social science. Now, in its high day, you can get a proper BSc degree uh, from the University of London in Household and Social Science, in which you learn organic and physical chemistry, general biology, applied chemistry, bacteriology, household work, special household work, institutional management. And the tests that come with this are just wonderful. So what you get is you get these lovely publication of exam papers. So uh, you, you get a sense of what people should be doing. So the exam paper uh, from 1921 uh, talks about uh, what what should you do for economic biology? Uh, and the question is, give an account of the habits and life history of the itch mite. Um, write an essay on insects and disease. Uh, so you get this kind of breadth of, of thing. But, but what makes it clear what's going on here is the practical exam that you get to sit. So one of the things you get to do is you have a day exam. Uh, you get to uh, take the exam from uh, in the morning. You get uh, uh, 10 to 1 for, for part 1. Plan meals for a day in a middle-class family for each of the seasons. Give the quantities required and compare the energy values. What principles would guide you in the choice of food? And there's a practical exam, so that's just theoretical still, so the practical exam, 10 to 4. Prepare a day's meal for a family consisting of father, mother and two children, using as little fuel as possible. Hand in the list of fresh ingredients required by 11am and calculate the price of each meal. Second part. All utensils used are to be cleaned and left for inspection. It includes the washing up. It's a wonderful idea. Now, obviously, as this is, you know, this this is not without opposition. Uh, that some years before, um, there's this wonderful uh, suffragette. Um, publication called The Free Woman uh, run by a woman called Dora Marsden and, and she's got a friend who's at this college um, uh, teaching uh, on this thing and, and she's quite forthright about this course uh, as you might imagine she says the aims of those who frame such a retrograde sc- scheme are in radical opposition to those of women who are deserving the freedom and development of women uh, they aim at perpetuating women's inferiority by perfecting her in the role which puts her in the greatest difficulties of her development I protest that a more impudent piece of charlatanry has never been perpetuated before in the history of education. Dora Marston goes out there. Now, eventually, obviously, it wanes and it, it moves off. And, it, and what comes Queen Elizabeth College goes into more normal branches of science. Uh, but for a moment, there is this wonderful BSc degree in household and social. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. 
So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Science. Now, finally this week, uh, there's a new pamphlet out on free speech. Sunday, will it work? Right. So, this pamphlet. <laughs> so, basically, it's um, UCL uh, academics, uh, Judith Sousa and Alison Sullivan, um, who think that not only is there a crisis of academic freedom, but that it is concentrated and most prevalent in the debate around sex and gender, specifically the debate around sex and gender at universities. Uh, and this comes out in the form of suppressing research, harassment and bullying and no platforming. And uh, in this, they recommend that universities appoint an academic freedom champion <laughs> within the senior leadership team of every university to ensure that staff and students are confident to speak out on issues of sex and gender. And uh, I think, Jim, you had the uh, indisputable pleasure of attending an event on this, I believe, that you might be able to, to talk about uh, a bit later on. Uh, where they discussed, um, and I believe, uh, the material reality of political salience of sex and the impacts on academic freedom. Um, which, okay, <laughs> so this is a little jarring, right? Because I think if they're going to go down this route, then they really, really need to separate freedom of speech from academic freedom. And I know that they conflate the two because they sort of riff off the back of Gavin Williams' um, freedom of speech higher education bill, which conflates the two to start with. But they still do it and uh, they mainly do it by sort of mentioning no platforming alongside the suppression of research, which I personally think is problematic because uh, no platforming comes uh, or the issues around non no platforming comes from student unions and is a product of all manner of different processes, uh, including sort of charity commission rules and the fact that student unions are political bodies and memberships can like sort of vote on motions and the SU can assign formally to sort of political positions or whatever. Um, and it's also quite important to remember that SUs, their leadership and their membership are sort of adults in their own right and uh, an organisation independent of the university. So I think that it's quite worrying with the sort of uh, advocation that a member of the senior leadership team should step in and sort of tell the children how to play. Um, but also on this point, uh, some um the point on sort of the champion to champion to promote free expression i would say from my own experience of working in events on campuses um and if anyone else has done this either student union or university run you sort of already know that there is already a champion to promote freedom expression and that's the sort of whoever or the equivalent of the governance and uh compliance officer who sort of and I'm going to be a bit facetious here but like in most cases you know you have someone in senior management they'll get 
a letter from the PayPal exiled free uh, PayPal exiled freedom of speech union, and they sort of like bow to whatever whims the demand of that letter set out. Um, so I kind of feel like that's all in hand. They don't really need to advocate that. But academic freedom is a completely different story. So that's to do with like funding bodies and universities, employers and institutions, and unlike student unions, cannot take overtly political stances. So is it going to work? I don't know. But if if it's going to make any kind of progress towards uh, fixing the problem, and the problem is indisputable as existing in the first place, but if it's going to fix the problem that they think exists, they first need to separate separate out those two processes. Okay, but 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 Sunday. I mean, it, it, to be fair to the authors, and, and look, you know, there's always a problem when you know you stick a press release out, or you know, you've got an exec summary or whatever. To be fair to the authors, the actual pamphlet itself down in the weeds does separate the two concepts out i guess you know without trying to paraphrase them what they would say is the problem here is the kind of cancel culture whether that manifests in formal no platforming or you know a kind of pylon on twitter or or whatever the cancel culture in the free speech debate then has kind of an impact on people's ability to exercise their academic freedom and it makes you know academic self-censor it makes some debates not you know you can't have those debates anymore on campus and you know, I guess one of the things that I would say about kind of being there last night is that I have no doubt that those particular academics are speaking from a position where they feel that, you know, they are experiencing cancel culture as something that is chilling their ability to, um, you know, exercise their academic freedom. What, 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 I'm, what I'm not sure about is whether or not, you know, sticking a champion on and having, you know, free speech classes or academic freedom classes for new students would fix the problem to the extent to which I agree with the problem. Okay, I, right, so what you're saying there, okay, right, so I've actually grappled with this quite a lot over the last, like, three or four years when this has sort of, like, flared up again, and um, when it comes to the ability to debate, I think, and it's interesting because they actually do use, you know, terms like material, uh, like, and sort of like the, act, like, you know, being able to actually do it. I I feel like there's, this is going to sound really weird, <laughs> it's like facts don't care about your feelings, right? But like, I feel that there is, there is lots of opportunity for people to discuss, you know, their points of view on highly political and contentious issues. And in fact, a lot of academics who don't get opportunities or get opportunities taken away from them to discuss uh, certain issues, the prime, you know, media example being Kathleen Stock, but like lots and lots of this has happened to lots of academics where they feel as if their opinions been suppressed and then immediately they're offered a hundred different platforms in which to talk freely about that. And there's I think what I personally and I've always taken quite a hard line on this is that you you have the right to say what you want, but you don't have the right to say that without being challenged. And part sometimes I feel like this whole, you know, the chilling effect or the kind of like when when people talk about intimidation, well, yeah, it is intimidating to say something that not a lot of people agree with. Like that is an intimidating thing to do, but that like you don't have the right to not feel like like you don't have the right to not feel uncomfortable to feel comfortable in saying something that the majority of people disagree with right i mean jim i was on a webinar of you uh this week i think it was this week all weeks blurring to each other and we were talking about um you know like sexual misconduct and staff student relationships and i remember on that 
webinar saying we're going to be talking about some really difficult things and like this is going to be something that a lot of people disagree with me on and there are moments where I talk about issues like that that are contentious where I sort of feel oh <laughs> I'm definitely going to get a bit of backlash over this you know but I don't have a right to not experience that backlash particularly as I said in that webinar this is something that I know most people disagree with me on. But but, but Smita this is very interesting isn't it because because actually one of the things I was sat at the back reflecting on was one, one, of, the, one of the topics that came up in the launch was this issue of denunciation and, and and how painful it is to be denounced particularly if you've spent your career exploring ideas in a relatively safe environment in the you know in a <laughs> in a university without being denounced but kind of micro denunciation is fascinating isn't it because you don't have to follow any rules you don't have to go to a court <laughs> you don't have to be fair you don't have to allow people another point of view you just have to fire off your micro denunciation on twitter and the compound impact of 500 of those in your mentions is obviously very painful for people now is it that the internet means that we're all just going to have to get used to being denounced a lot <laughs> more than we used to be or, or, or should we do something about the internet or try and re-educate students i mean what where what do you do about this so i i i think that's a really interesting question because very often when people are talking about cancel culture they're not talking about anybody in rare occasions, they are talking about things like publishers refusing to publish books and so on. But more often than not, they're writing, they're, they're kind of people who've said, right, I don't want to read anything by this author anymore, or I'm not going to, to go to this, this, you know, band's performance anymore because I disapprove so strongly of what someone has said. Um, and so it is those sort of small decisions that individuals are making and expressing about how they have perceived what has been expressed by this, the, whoever they're, they're, they're sort of targeting. And that then brings us to the question of, can we do anything about that? Should we do anything about it. And I do think, I know you were dismissive and of should, it. In and, your, and should there be an act of parliament? <laughs> well, of course, there shouldn't be an act of parliament, but there is going to be an act of parliament. But actually, I so um, reading your blog this morning, I know you were very dismissive about the idea that anybody needs to be educated about academic freedom. You know, people understand this concept and notwithstanding that, they want the right to say, I disagree with you. So, I absolutely agree with the right to say, I disagree with you. I do think that there is a piece of work that could be usefully done, which is to understand what academic freedom means that is different to just being able to talk about issues generally and why we have to perhaps allow, well, we don't have to perhaps, we have to allow academics to go where their research is leading them, even if that's leading them to some quite uncomfortable places. And I say this because I do get, you know, asked to look at um, university policies on academic freedom and freedom of speech quite a lot. And there is stuff in there which might lead you to suggest that if it is something that some people would find uncomfortable, perhaps it's not a, you know, it's not a permissible exercise of academic freedom. I do think there is work that could be done there. What it cannot ever do, though, is stop people from saying, do you know what? I totally disagree with what you said. And frankly, I, do, I don't like you very much for having said it. That is their right to freedom of expression. That is their right to autonomy about, you know, what they want to hear and what they want to engage with. And the fact we conflate the two, that we cannot see, that you can't stop it, we shouldn't Or at stop the very it. least, there's an interrelationship between the two. Yeah. 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 Uh, but, but and, and that's what I, so I sort of agree very, you know, violently. I violently agree with Sunday that the idea that you can say things that people will find very, very personally uncomfortable, challenging, you know, distressing in some situations and expect them not to react to that is, is neither realistic nor reasonable. I think, do you know what the other, the other thing that, I, so I, I'm obviously very like adamant to make the difference between student union events and academic expertise. And the reason I, th reason I bang on about this so much is because I think that expertise is really, really important in this, in, in this like 
case. So when we're talking about, and what you said about, um, you know, where academics research is leading them can be uncomfortable, but that is their area of expertise. And again, like obviously I brought up the case of Kathleen Stock and she's a philosopher and she was doing work around the philosophy of sex and gender. I think I'm bringing her up because obviously this particular uh, pamphlet obviously mentions sex and gender. So she's like at the forefront of my mind here. But like, you know, that as, as uncomfortable as the stuff that she was saying, there is an argument to be made that she is a professor of, professor of philosophy and she was looking at the philosophy of gender. Now, sometimes when you get, uh, for example, student union events, and it frustrates me on both uh, both hands. So on one hand, you will have someone who is chatting a load of stuff about something, not their area of expertise. They're not an academic. They just happen to have opinion that people don't agree with. And therefore, they're sort of like, you know, elevated onto these platforms and churned out to talk at events and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, but why would I listen to them? Because this isn't their expertise. This is just, they're just saying something that isn't very nice, right? However, you then get um some academics who will come and they will be coming to talk about something that is nothing to do with an with a controversial opinion that they hold right so it will be like um i think one of the cases was right julie bindle can't, i cannot disagree with her more on any of her politics like she is my arch nemesis in terms of like our viewpoints but she was coming to talk about i think it was something to do with like working class history and there was all this stuff around it where they were saying oh she shouldn't come and talk because of her views on sex work and sex workers rights and i was like okay well i guess you could argue that sex workers rights and working class history cross over but that wasn't what she was talking about she was talking about a very specific uh part of uh working class history she wasn't gonna be working talking about sex work she wasn't gonna be talking about trans issues and I was thinking well as much as I as much as I disagree with her she is an expert in working class lesbian history (laughs) and therefore I don't think that there's any issue of her coming to talk about that right so there's this sort of there's all these different areas where actually you know any any person any guest speaker you sit them down and you you know it's like a a, a thousand typing monkeys right you sit them down and you go through every single opinion that they've got eventually you're going to find one that you don't agree with so i think we have to be really careful when we're looking at stuff that people are talking about when we're looking at the event when we're looking at what's going on and be like okay well is it is it that they're coming and they're talking about their area of expertise and it's you know it's all in hand or is it that we just we just know that one time that they said something that we don't like and therefore as a person we are cancelling them the question you you we're looking at is is the law going to is a change in the law going to really make any kind of difference to this and um as you know i've got views on that but the the specific thing i wanted to talk about was whether or not we need to reflect on the whole issue looking back on what's happened over the last two weeks okay and over the last two weeks we've seen very very overt clear directions that certain views are not to be expressed because they will offend a very large number of people at a very sensitive time and there have been a lot of people who found this a very oppressive place because they haven't been able to express the views they want it. If you take that and try and then apply it to every other issue that falls within the culture wars, whether it's sex and gender, whether it's decolonization, whatever it is, the same principle applies. And so we know that there is a line for everyone. And the law shouldn't be policing where that line is. And that is the problem with this bill. It can't do it. It is a social thing and it's a cultural thing which needs to be done through social and cultural measures, not law. 
So that's all we've got time for this week. Remember to dig deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast auto-magically. Just search for The Wonky Show on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and where you work ahead of everything going on in UKHE, pop over to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to Gavin, Smita, Sunday, everyone back at the ranch that makes the show happen. And until next week, stay wonky. Stay wonky.